Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, dude? Yeah, I'm doing all right, mate. How's yourself? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. All ready to get cracking with another weekly podcast? Let's just get it out of the fucking way. No, 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 no. no. It's, it's all good. No, that's good. It's got some cool stuff to talk about. That's the kind of enthusiasm <laughs> we, uh, we've known to love and expect from my, my glorious co-host over here. All right, then we'll, we'll get going then, shall we? Yes, please. Let's do that. Let's get on with some film news. Uh, first up this week from EmpireOnline.com. Scream sequel. Melissa Barrera, Jasmine Savoy Brown, Mason Gooding and Jenna Ortega all returning. Given the success of this year's Scream Legacy sequel slash reboot cool, another movie, I, I, that's not a word, is it? Well, I mean, they're in, the, in the film, they use the term requel, which I, I suppose... That's much better. Which I suppose is a contraction of reboot cool. Yeah, reboot cool. I'm sorry. I know words are just made up things in the first place, but I'm not allowing No, that. as far as um, neologisms go, that is a particularly horrible one. I mean, re- requel, I can tolerate that a bit more. But. Requel flows, doesn't it? Reboot cool doesn't. But yeah, anyway. Some arsehole came up with that one. I'm not going to say it again. I dislike it that much. <laughs> uh, another movie was surely a given, and indeed was announced shortly after the first film, or the fifth in the screen franchise, to be accurate, began making money. Now we know the young stars Melissa Barrera, Jasmine Savoy-Brown, Mason Gooding and Jenna Ortega are all back for more self-referential horror. Directors Matt Bettinel-Olpin and Tyler Gillett, part of the filmmaking collective, or Gillet perhaps, part of the filmmaking collective known as Radio Silence, are returning behind the camera along with writers James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. There's a lot of names in there that I really, really can't pronounce. Um, you quite liked the most recent Scream film, if I remember correctly. You gave it a middling to good review. It had its moments, yeah. I thought it was pretty fun. Um, in fact, I think, if I recall correctly, the, the the Scream entry that I've actually disliked the most, which I seem to be in a minority in regards to, is uh, the fourth one. Yes. It, people slate the shit out of Scream 3. I think Scream 3 is hilarious. I find it so fun. Great, just sort of um, brain candy slasher um, shenanigans. Number four was just, I just found the, the antagonist completely and utterly in-fucking-sufferable. And it was a, to a more egregious degree than the fifth instalment. And, like, yeah, I mean, it had its flaws. It did some things it shouldn't have done. But, um, yeah, I, I, kinda, I had a good time with it. Some people really loathed it. I certainly didn't. So my next question is, would you be happy to see a sequel? I mean, it seems like they're going for definitely the same thing again, and it seems to, like, make a lot of money. I mean, I'll watch it. Uh, you know, that's the thing. Nothing. That's not quite the same thing. What do you mean? <laughs> well, you mean I, you mean am I? Would I be excited? Yeah. Would you Would it? you be hyped? Probably not hyped. No. Nah, probably not hyped. But I'd think to myself, you know, this would probably be. You know, I'd hope this would be fairly enjoyable to watch. You know, because I do. I love the first one. You know, because it's a very intelligent postmodern uh, slasher, and um, as I said before, the sequels. None of the sequels actually measure up to the very first instalment. But um, there's there's been only one where I've thought, oh, God, I fucking hated that one. And it wasn't the most recent one. So There you go. That's something of a track record they're starting to build here. We shall see. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, I, I one thing, you know, I just, I think that um, some of the dialogue in the newest one that was referring to, you know, what they call elevated horror or prestige horror, I can see what they were going for, but I think there was a little bit of clunkiness wrapped around that. So, I mean, I hope that that's not something they're going to dive. If they do dive deeper into that, you know, the distinction between prestige horror, which is um, considered a very snobby term, versus popcorn horror, I don't know. I hope they have something more interesting and incisive to say about it if they're going to do that again. But who knows? One can only hope. Uh, second article this week, this is from filmnews.co.uk. Rafe Fiennes has joined the cast of the conspiracy thriller Conclave. The 59-year-old actor has signed up to lead the movie and will star alongside Stanley Tucci, John Lithgow and Isabella Rossellini. The film is being directed by Edward Berger and has been written by Peter Strawn. The story is based on Robert Harris's novel of the same name. The plot takes place after the death of the Pope and sees the reluctant Cardinal Lamelli tasked with overseeing the group of cardinals from across the globe responsible for selecting a new leader of the Catholic Church. 
As the political machinations inside the Vatican intensify, he realizes that the outgoing Pope has kept a secret from them that he must uncover before a new pontiff is chosen. Um, very intrigued by the plots, and uh, that's a hell of a cost. It is, isn't it? So, um, yeah, conclave, you say? Yes. Well, I'll have to be, uh, that's uh, definitely um, on my radar now. I mean, a Catholic thriller. I mean, we haven't had one of those in a while, although I believe we may have something self-referential coming up to that in your first couple of reviews. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, sort of. I mean, Catholicism is certainly in there. but um, Ripe for conspiracy, mystery and intrigue. Oh, absolutely, mate, yeah. But no, I mean, uh, yeah, a papal conspiracy thriller with, would you say Rafe Fiennes, Is Isabella Rossellini? Uh, Stanley Tucci, John Lithgow, who I absolutely adore. I mean, man, I mean, that is... And the, these these four are starring in it, or did you say Rafe Fiennes was directing it? Well, star alongside, yeah, yeah. Rafe Fiennes is, I would imagine, in the lead because he's the biggest name out of the lot. Well, I mean, that's four people that I in infinitely enjoy watching. So. Did I tell you that I watched The King's Man recently? Yes, you did. You said you made it sound rather bizarre. It is an absolutely weird movie. It's incredibly weird. And then the last third, it turns into a Kingsman film. You say it was tonally uh, just all over the place. The first two acts are utterly bizarre. And it sort of does 1917 in the middle, which is really weird. Suddenly it becomes about trench warfare. And it's playing with all this sort of um, fantasy history kind of thing. And a really bizarre Rasputin performance as well. And you're just watching it going, what the fuck is this? What are my eyeballs seeing right now? And then in the last third, Ray Fiennes kind of takes it over and does a bit of Kingsman action kind of thing. And it's kind of good. So you come at the end of it going, there is a third of a good movie in there and two thirds drock or drek <laughs> or whatever. You know what I mean? Rubbish. Sounds baffling. But Ray Fiennes is very good in it, as he always is in everything. Ray Fiennes is really poor. Mm. You know, I, in fact, I don't ever think he is poor. I just think, you know, I mean, so he hasn't starred, not every single one of the films he starred in is brilliant, but I've always liked the man very much. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm actually kind of looking forward to that. And any chance to see John Lithgow chew up the screen, I'm, uh, I'm always into that. Absolutely. Uh, next article here, again from filmnews.co.uk. Josh Brolin has hinted that a third Sicario movie could be made. The 54-year-old star played CIA officer Matt Graver in the 2015 action flick and the sequel Sicario Day of the Soldado and revealed that a third film has been written and rewritten and could still head into production. Josh told The Hollywood Reporter, I just don't know when we'll do it. We may be 80, but it's very much the forefront of all of our minds. It's been written and it's been rewritten, so it's out there. We think it deserves a third one if we can make it in the way that we want to make it, so don't give up. I put this in here because you reviewed Sicario quite recently, at the very least the first one, and very much enjoyed it. Um, the very first Sicario the, by Denis Villeneuve, the 2015 one, I think is an absolutely fantastic film. I think it's one of the best films of the 21st century quite easily. It's an excellent motion picture. I haven't seen the sequel I've heard some very mediocre things about it. Yeah, it strikes me as even the title suggests what used to be called director DVD. I don't know what the equivalent yeah. is these days. Day, Day of, of the, the Soldado. Day of the Soldado. Yeah, and I know people who, like myself, um, love the first one and went to see the sequel and were very much, hmm, like, well, that really didn't measure up at all, did it? I wonder so, if they're hanging around waiting for Denis Villeneuve to be free, which I think is not going to happen given his Dune franchise plans. I really for... hope that Sicario doesn't turn into some sort of fucking action franchise because the first film, the first Sicario, is um, such a smart and poetic and just finely drawn, um, shocking you know, social thriller about, you know, the ramifications of drug cartels and, you know, government collusion and, you know, the way that those kind of landscapes um, break and transform people. You know, Sicario is in, is an incredible film just completely by itself. So I really hope they're not trying to franchise it into some sort of, you know, gung-ho action dog shit um, I don't know how how aptly you could apply the label gung-ho action dog shit to the second film because, as I say, I haven't seen it, but I've heard very not good things about it. So It must be done. Maybe I'll give that a look. And, yeah. Um, I mean, but have you seen the first like one? one of my one, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah I've I, seen I, the first one. I yeah. saw it on your recommendation, actually. You I did. enjoyed it a lot. First yeah. one is just superb. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Well, if you get round to it first, you know, you you know, tell me what you think. It sounds like one of my made for premium. This is a bad movie, so Andy reviewed it. 
<laughs> there we go. And my last article this week, Surgery is the New Sex in the trailer for David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. Oh, yes, I've heard about this one. This is an article from EmpireOnline.com. Fun fact, David Cronenberg made an underground movie called Crimes in the Future in 1970. But aside from a few thematic similarities, his latest film with the same name is not a remake. What it is, however, is the director fully back on the body horror beat. We've got a link to the trailer in the article here. Uh, apparently, Crime's story is a typical Cronenbergian dive into body mods and emotion. In a not-so-distant future, humankind is learning to adapt to its synthetic surroundings. Their biological makeup changed. Many humans have adapted to life with accelerated evolution syndrome, thanks partly to specialized equipment that aids in everything from eating to sleeping. Beloved performance artist Saul Tenser, played by Viggo Mortensen, sleeps in a womb-like bed suspended in midair. The orchid bed, as it's called, comes complete with software to anticipate and adjust to his every bodily need. The machine even detects the growth of new organs, which Saul's creative partner Caprice can observe and tattoo in his personal operating theatre. Together, Saul and Caprice have turned the discovery and removal of these new body organs into performance art via sold-out voyeuristic surgical shows using a sarcophagus-like machine where the surgeries take place. This is all very Cronenbergian, isn't it? Absolutely, but um, I mean, I'm excited for this one. And actually, at the opening of um, our upcoming premium episode, I'm I'm aiming to talk about his son a little bit as well because I'm also a big fan of Brandon uh, Junior Cronenberg. He's showing a hell of a lot of flair. But yes, longtime fan of Cronenberg Senior, um, and I'm, I've been yeah, I'm very psyched for Crimes of the Future. I love Videodrome, I love Existence, I love The Brood, I love Shivers, Rabbit, like, just about everything. I've seen you repping, uh, what was it, The Possessor? Possessor is uh, Brandon Cronenberg's film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I've yeah. seen you repping that quite a lot on Twitter. I remember your review of it, you were uh, very much in love with that film. Well, I actually re-watched it recently, and uh, I also re-watched, um, I also did a first-time watch of one of Brandon's other films, and uh, he's also got another one coming out, so... I was actually aiming to talk about him a little bit uh, on the premium because he's very exciting and he's got a lot in common with his old man whilst being unique. So yeah, David David Cronenberg, very happy to hear that he is back in the mad, mad fucking saddle that kickstarted his career because he's he's a guy of um, incredibly interesting and unique vision, I think. And uh, even when he's deviated from that and done, even when he's gone into genres of, you know, crime, you know, crime thriller, such as with uh, a history of violence or, you know, he's, he has done exceptionally well in it. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and no, I'm, I'm glad, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for it. And this sort of ties into what we were talking about last week. So I remember we were talking about uh, John Woo going back to his first film and doing a reimagining of it. It sort of seems to be a, a similar kind of bent, even though he seems to have changed the plot beats quite a lot. It's uh, although it's not technically a reboot, it's taking you know a, a sort of inspiration from his earlier work almost, which would be really really interesting to see how he handles that as a director. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, quite psyched for that one. We will be. Uh... Well, he's um. As a, did you ever see uh, his conversation with Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight, where he's talking about the aesthetics of violence? No, but now I must. It's only about ten. You can find it on YouTube. It's about ten minutes long. Yeah, be at Newsnight. Jeremy Paxman sits down with Cronenberg to just discuss. Um, yeah, just discuss violence, violence, you know, the aesthetic surrounding it, the morality surrounding it. It's a brilliant conversation. And David Cronenberg is just, he's just phenomenally interesting to listen to. He's an incredibly bright guy, um, very lateral thinker, just a very commanding presence. And, uh, you know, and that comes through in, I'd say, the great majority of his cinematic work. So, yes, what definitely tracked down that interview. And, uh, yeah, I am... I'm definitely pumped for crimes, so... Cool shit. Let's fucking go. Let's fucking go, Crazy man. Crazy Canadian Let's fucking bastards. go. <laughs> anyway, enough of that shit. Um, <laughs> let's get on to some real substantial stuff. Liam has got a couple of reviews this week, as usual. Uh, where are we going, man? Uh, well, I watched this one um, a few weeks back, actually, but uh, you were out of the country at the time, so we... Apologies. We couldn't do it. <laughs> But <laughs> I've ruined everything. I, I do apologize. Uh, this is one that um, obviously got some buzz from more of the more loony cinephiles such as myself. And you actually brought it up on one of the news um, shouts, I believe. If I don't know if, um, many people um, will immediately recall, but I sat down and I watched Benedetta. 
Ah, yes. The latest from uh, Paul Verhoeven, the um, totally normal Dutch. Horny um, old Paul, yeah. as we call him on this podcast. Totally yes. normal Dutch uh, cineast and, uh, you know, all around perv legend. <laughs> Most recently cropped up in the news for suggesting that James Bond didn't have enough sex in it, which I thought was a really interesting hot I agree take. with him. I, I agree with him. <laughs> All films should be more pornographic. Well, well, otherwise you're shaming, you're being bigoted against hypersexuality, which, hey. which isn't very nice. Let's all be, you know, you know on an equal people, level. People here, can't man. help it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, going, going down a dark road here. Tell me, <laughs> Liam. Tell me about the lesbian nuns. Well, um, I that's the thing. I really like. Um, I love Paul Vogue, and I, you know, I, I thought that L from 2016, I believe, with Isabel Huppert was just um absolutely fantastic. I remember seeing somebody describe that as Hitchcock on steroids, which was a pretty apt description. He's a really great filmmaker, and I was I was really excited for Benedetta because I know that it's, if it's Paul Verhoeven at the helm, he's not going to put any punches. He's going to give it to you straight, and he's probably going to give you something to he's probably going to give you some significant food for thought to come away with, however challenging it might be. And I'm happy to report that I was right. So let's give this a rundown. So you have uh, Virginie Ephira. I think I'm pronouncing. I think like Virginie. I think in you know within. I think francophonically, that's like uh, Virginie. So Virginie Afira, she stars as Benedetta Carlini, who was a she, she existed um, in real life. She was a 17th century Catholic nun and a, a mystic who was accused of um, blasphemy and diabolical works um, for several reasons, not limited to her carrying on a lesbian affair with one of her fellow sisters. So the film opens with uh, Benedetta being escorted by her parents to a convent in uh, Pescia, which is in Tuscany, in like sort of central Italy. And um, as they're journeying, they're stopped by a few bandits along the way who intimidate, surround them and intimidate them. And um, they rip Benedetta's mother's um precious sort of necklace off and Benedetta immediately um, she stares at the men and tells them that she is in direct communication with the Virgin Mary and that if they don't hand the necklace back and be on their way and leave them alone then she will visit upon them a pretty severe penalty and at that moment a bird um, I think it's a magpie flying around who Benedetta says um, is a sort of like a an envoy of the Virgin Mary, it proceeds to take a big shit all over one of the bandits' faces. So it's a semi-comical moment, but they're actually spooked out enough that they believe her and they hand the necklace back and they piss off. And Benedetta's mum and dad, they take her to the convent. they greeted by the abbess, played by Charlotte Rampling, who's obviously a very uh, beloved English uh, screen siren, who I had no idea was actually perfectly fluent in French. I was quite surprised to learn that. Didn't know Charlotte Rampling was fluent in French. Hey, hidden talents. But that's pretty cool. Isn't yeah. that one of those things that actors put on their CV, like horse riding, where it's always bullshit? Yeah. But, you know, you've got to put it on there because people expect you to. And then if you get cast in a French-speaking role, you're like, oh, shit, I need a dialogue coach. Yeah, well, I mean, she seemed incredible. She seemed to have incredible aptitude from where I was sitting. So, yeah, Charlotte Good on Rampling. her for hustling, man. Charlotte Rampling, fluent French. No idea. But, yeah, she is the abbess. And um, she tells Benedetta to get settled in, blah, blah, blah. And um, one night, Benedetta leaves her room and she's praying before a statue of um, the Virgin Mary that is located outside of her dorm in the convent. And as she's praying, the statue, it's sort of, it doesn't break completely from the wall, but it falls just shy of landing completely on top of her. Benedetta is um, on her back on the floor in shock, and the Virgin Mary statue, which would most definitely crush her, stops dead at one of its hinges on the wall. And as it's hanging over her, Benedetta just decides to impulsively suck on one of its breasts. So even from a very early age, you get the inclination that there's something very sort of sensual to her religious inclination. We skip forward about 20 years later, 15, 20 years later, Benedetta is now a young woman. And one day a young lass by the name of uh, Bartolomea uh, is trying to escape from her father, who is who her father who is also her pimp, which is just a tad unseemly. And Bartolomea said, you know, she offers to pay um, the nuns if they will accept her, give her refuge, and accept her as um, a sister. 
and eventually Bartolomeo is essentially made Benedetta's charge and, uh, you know, to show her the ropes, what have you. And um, it becomes apparent early on that there is some significant degree of attraction between them, you know, um, definitely a physical attraction, but um, something that's, well, you know, you'll have to watch it, but it bl- blossoms into something a little bit more substantive than that. But Benedetta, she also claims to um, be in direct communication with Christ because the film is also uh, weaved in with um, her sort of fever dreams of um, encounters with Jesus that always end in a very unexpectedly violent and uh, sort of barbaric fashion. There's actually, there's one point in this film where Jesus murders the fuck out of several people with a broadsword, which is quite intriguing. Worth the price of a ticket alone. Absolutely, yeah. mate. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's sort of, you know, yeah. The power and of Christ compels you. Yes, it certainly fucking does. You know, or he'll <laughs> compel you with various implements. You know, so, I mean, right off the bat, that's a very bold, very Verhoeven move there. Um, but yeah, she claims to be in uh, direct contact with Christ and she claims to you know bear this stigmata and um so people you know rumors start going around Benedetta is uh, you know she's a lesbian but um we also believe that she's a blasphemer because of these claims and you know sort of certain certain events certain fracas it sort of all coalesces into um quite a uh, you know a, a tense arc for um our Lady Benedetta and um, those around her. And uh, basically, this film, it's upset quite a few people globally and in this country. I mean, I don't really give a fuck about that personally. I'm all for, for artistic freedom of expression. And I ultimately care that if you have something interesting to say, you should say it. Well, I think that Verhoeven absolutely has something interesting to say here. This film is an, a wonderful study of individual freedom and religious hypocrisy and you know religious freedom is you know your capacity to um articulate your belief in a higher power as it comes to you without having some sort of external body interfering you know interfering not only in terms of uh stigmatizing you maybe subjecting you to some sort of custody but also torturing you because there are scenes in this film, I think the scenes that are absolutely, they're quite difficult to watch uh, when uh, Benedetta is eventually accused of uh, being a blasphemer and being an adulterer because of her quote-unquote perverse sexual orientation. And it, it showcases just how vile a lot of the papal authorities actually were. The kind of things they would do to other human beings, especially women, were they to stray from the dogma set down by the Pope and, you know, his all of his underbosses, if you like. Uh, yeah, just a, a really fiery and damning um, look at, yeah, just how these... These are completely corrupt and deluded barbaric bastards who um, do disgusting things to exert their will. And uh, whether Benedetta is actually uh, professing, whether, you know, because with this this film, there's three possibilities, essentially, and it's, um, it's handled with a very delightful ambiguity because Benedetta is either being a complete bullshitter um, she's suffering from some sort of severe delusionary mental illness, or she's saying the truth. And it, there's, it, it really, it, you're never given a conclusive, wrap it all up answer to either of them. And that, that, benef- that actually helps the film narratively to, um, I'd say, a magical degree. I was profoundly moved by it. I was, um, it was suspenseful in many parts. You come, you really give a flying fuck about Benedetta and Bartolomeo, but also characters who are initially somewhat antagonistic, such as the abbess played by Charlotte Rampling and certain other people who they're not especially taken with Benedetta's claims and they think that she might be telling porky pies. You eventually see how this milieu and the conventions forced upon it how they adversely affect um, everyone, more or less. And, uh, yeah, there's just something, there's something unique and there's something triumphant about it. And it's, it's immaculate cinematography, very well acted, very intelligent filmmaking. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I really liked it 
um, a hell of a lot. And I think this is a film that can be, I think it's a, a really great movie for a whole bunch of people. I mean, I think you'll get a massive kick out of this if you're a, a you know, a very weird, constantly brooding cinephile such as myself. You know, or if you're just, you know, even if you're somebody who... Um, a horny old man, for example. Or a horny old man. Does, Paul, just, does he make films for, for horny old men at this point? I can't think of one Paul Verhoeven film where I haven't had a serious wank. <laughs> but I saw this in the cinemas. No, I'm only joking. I'm only <laughs> Banned no. from the Odeon. Uh, no. I'm only messing about, or am I? <laughs> no, he's, um, he is, no, he's a, no, Paul Verhoeven, you haven't seen, you haven't seen L, have you? No, no, like, I haven't yet. Paul Verhoeven is a skilled as fuck filmmaker. I mean, I love, I love Total Recall and, you know, Robocop and, um, you know, uh, Devoured Man, the fourth man. Even, I mean, Basic Instinct is enjoyable. It's a bit pulpier and a little bit trashier than a lot of the other stuff he's made, but it's still very enjoyable, I think. He makes, I think he he's capable of um, you know uh, great sort of sci-fi vision, but he's great at making very racy thrillers. But he's also he he also turns his hand great at very suspenseful, um, more cerebral scripts. I mean, I think L comes under that banner, but I think that Benedetta is probably probably the best articulation of just how intelligently challenging Paul Verhoeven can really be. And yeah, I, I enjoyed this film immensely. As I say, it's very, it's very poignant. It's very smart. Um, it's got um, it's got the central characters have a really satisfying arc. You know, the cinematic language is just brilliant. Yeah, I, I really liked it a lot. Really liked it, and I would recommend it to just about anybody. Fantastic. Shall we giving it a look? And then next up, well, this was quite a surprise. I also watched Ambulance. Is this the new Michael Bay? It is. Now, anyone listening, I think we've actually mentioned it on both on free episodes and on premium episodes. We don't like Michael Bay. Hot take. Yeah. Amongst I mean, the cinematic community. He's, a, I mean, that's the thing. You know, don't get me wrong. Let me qualify this because I know people are saying like, well, you know, fucking art from artists, man. 100% agrees. Um, the guy is an absolute fucking helmet piece of shit, knobhead bellend. Yes, we have agreed on that. The thing is, the overwhelming majority of his filmography can also be described in exactly those terms as well. He's basically a piece of shit who makes pieces of shit. Yes. And there's a nice bit of synergy there. Yeah. I, I think we can agree. And there is, I mean, even though I'm not really that crazy about them, I think there's a good argument to be made that bad boys end the rock more likely The Rock were, you know, they are the, they're the ones that stand out. They're actually ones where you go, okay, this is, these are supposed to be fun, high-octane, action-packed bubblegum thrillers that um, you're not supposed to really take seriously at all. You're there for the adrenaline and the, you know, the humour and just, you know, the, the overall punchiness of the exercise. Now, I think you could probably, you could accurately describe Bad Boys and The Rock that way. The, the rest of his films, especially shit like Transformers, they are really substandard, lowest common denominator trash that condescend to its audience. Okay, which I think is probably the worst kind of thing you can do. Would you agree with that? I would entirely you know, agree Transformers, with that. Yeah. I mean, no, they're, I've sat through all of them. Yeah. Paul, um, poorly made and, they, and believing themselves to, or Michael Bay rather, believes that he's saying something substantive in them where he is actually not saying anything substantive at all and just be essentially it's not he's using the films to be a dick to his audience who just want to have a bit of a, a bit of fun for you know 90 minutes like two hours i think you would struggle you mentioned earlier the concept of separating art from artists and i would agree with that and i know this is me being super edgy here but i would struggle to call the transformers films art I know we could get into that whole big discussion about what is art and what's not. Does, but, you know, isn't the classic definition of art things that move you? Yeah. I don't think anybody was moved by a Transformers film. <laughs> you know, I just don't think that happened. But anyway, yes. Well, even, we, I mean, we I, hate Michael Bay. We yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm actually becoming like slightly more of an arsehole in that, you know, I, I want to see more film critics, you know, like Brian Sewell was in the art world. It's like, well, nobody cares what his fans think. They're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> that might be going a bit too far. But Michael Bay, latest one, Ambulance, Jake Yulenhall, and Yahya Abdul Mateen II. Now, Yahya Abdul Mateen II plays Will Sharp, who is a military veteran 
and he lives with his wife and daughter and his wife needs um, some surgery for an ailment and uh, it's, it's, I think it's about $200,000, which he hasn't got, you know, anywhere near approaching. He's living hand to mouth. I think he's on like um, military disability severance. Right from the outset, um, we're informed that uh, Will Sharp, Yaya's character, has an estranged brother, technically an adoptive brother, but he's a strange brother, a man named Danny Sharp, played by Jake Yilnol. Um, They've, you know, they've been brothers since they were kids, since uh, Danny's biological dad took Will in. We find out that um, basically Will's wife says to him, we're going through a lot. I know we're financially hard up. I know that I'm not well. I know that we need shit to get taken care of, but we'll work it out. You need to promise me something. I don't want you to get in contact with Danny. I don't want you speaking to your brother. I don't want you near your brother. Just don't. If he reaches out to you, just like ignore him. Please don't go anywhere near him. And Will says... Yeah, okay, you know, yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah, you know, I won't do that. I won't do that. And you're thinking, like, what the fuck is that all about? What kind of thing is that to ask somebody? But then Will leaves the house and he drives up the road a little bit and he gets a phone call. And it is Danny who says, you know, come on, bro, we're expecting you. You know, let's go, let's go, let's go. So Will has been sort of surreptitiously talking to Danny. And he drives to Danny's location, which is a large warehouse of uh, goods. Like he runs like some sort of. I can't even remember what the fucking business was. I think they 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 help furnish like events and galas with certain mad ornaments and furniture and all this sort of bullshit. But what it really is is it's a front business because um, Danny's real bank comes from the fact that he's the head of a crew of professional armed robbers. So then we think back to Will's wife saying, I don't want you going anywhere near your brother. And he clicks into place. You think, well, I don't know. I thought she was kind of being an arsehole there, asking him to never contact his brother. But if this is his gig, I can sort of understand why. Sure. But yes, Will is very hard up. He's desperate for his money. He's not going to get a loan. He doesn't know how else to get it. So he is, is hooking up with his estranged career criminal brother, Danny, um, to get in on a... Heists that will net them, what is it, $32 million. And uh, I mean, there's only, I mean, in total, the crew are what, like four or five? They're a pretty small crew, $32 million even split. Each man is going to come come away with a, a pretty damn penny. So um, they got a, quite a meticulous plan to rip off this bank. And, uh, you know, every man just sort of, uh, you know, assumes his positions, does what he's supposed to do. They go into the bank, but... As luck or lack thereof would have it, a couple of cops happen by. One of the coppers is this fucking idiot who has got a crush on one of the tellers, comes in to, thinks, you know, today would be the uh, best day of all days to come in and announce to her that he'd like to take her out for a drink sometime. He finds himself smack bang in the middle of a hostage crisis that Danny is overseeing. All hell breaks loose. People start getting shot. There's, there's more like some police responses. The gang scramble to get the hell out of there through like any sort of rear entrance and exit they can. Basically, it all ends up in one big clusterfuck with the only survivors of the robbery crew being Will and Danny. And um, it reaches a point where they either have to do something really nuts or just be either killed or taken into custody. So in order to avoid the latter... They hijack an ambulance. Now, leading up to the robbery turning into a cacophony of shit, we've also been following Cam Thompson, played by Isaac Gonzalez, who is a, an EMT, who's a bit of a she's a bit of a cynical burnout. She is riding with her partner. He commends her on how um, how much she admires her empathy and how well she works with um, people who are in life threatening situations. She's like, hey, it's just a job. I don't feel anything about it. You know, like shut the fuck up, rookie. That sort of shit. They've been attending an emergency nearby and Will and Danny, they just hop in the ambulance, they take everyone hostage and it's just like drive, drive, drive. And so for the next hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes, it is a high speed chase across the state's highways with Will and Danny in this ambulance with Cam and 
one of the injured cops from said robbery debacle with basically the law enforcement's hounds of hell chasing them down in this, you know, you know this this epic road battle during which um, many an explosion is detonated, many a firearm battle takes place, um, plenty of double crosses and crazy things weaving in and out of the tail. It is absolute testosterone pumps action thriller mayhem. Where we thought Michael Bay might be going. Yeah. Where we thought Michael Bay might be going. And it's also the closest approximation to what made films like Bad Boys and The Rock entertaining to watch in the first place. This film, it doesn't have any of the... It, it doesn't actually suffer, in, in my estimation, from a lot of the problems that Michael Day's latter-day filmography suffer from. I mean, the, the kind of things that make things like the, the Transformers franchise insufferable to watch, fucking pain and gain and all that bullshit, sloppy filmmaking, films that they, they, they think they have a lot more to say than they actually do. This ambulance is just stripped back, reverting back to the 90s in terms of action thriller. This is just, here's a little bit of exposition. Here's who's who. Here's how they kind of know each other. Right, we're getting into the action. And then it just builds and it just builds the the momentum and it just keeps going full throttle all the way. Um, There's some very good humour in it. There's a lot of levity in this film that I thought works really well. Um, Garrett Dillahunt, who is an actor, a character actor I've always really loved. He plays, um, especially in, where is he? These, these, he's like Captain Monroe of like these special investigations unit or whatever the hell it is. And um, we find out that um, you know he, he may have crossed paths with like, Danny and some of his associates before. And he's sort of like the the big dog leading the chase, and he's got a lot of great one liners. He does he does the um sort of, you know, the tough, griping, sarcastic police captain bit very well. Jake Gyllenhaal is, he, I mean, he plays essentially a volatile, sociopathic career criminal in this. And, I mean, Dan, was it Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler, which is one of my favourite films, again, of the 21st century. Jake Gyllenhaal plays a really bad guy to a you know, almost an incomparable degree. You know, that's that's a, essentially a psychological thriller slash satire. But Jake Gyllenhaal, when he needs to, when he's you know when he needs to play a villain, he does command something. There's something something just becomes wide eyed and faux affable, and actually quite scary. And I think that he pulls that off very well. He does that whilst also being being very amusing. And yeah, I, I like the 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 breaks of levity in this film. You know, it, it it works with the snappiness of it. The action sequences are, are extremely enjoyable. It's just it's fast, it's punchy, um, it's funny. You know, there are some things that are high stakes, but they're they're handled with um they're handled with a with a paciness that you see in a lot of nineties action films, but seldom see now. The only thing I didn't like about Ambulance is at the very end, I'd say the ending five minutes. It was too schmaltzy and silly for my liking, just the way that it was scored, um, the way that it was shot. The the end, the, very, the final five minutes was kind of lame, and I thought, like, oh, come on, for fuck's sake, like, what are you doing, you know? Because everything up to that point has just been, you know, bosh, bosh, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It's just bang. We need an action thriller, bang. It's going to, you know, it's humorous, it's tight. You know, it doesn't fucking let up. There are nods in there to um, various films. Oh, yeah, that's, so there are two things in this film. There are two things about this film that I didn't care for. One was the ending. The second one is, in the script, The Rock and Bad Boys are referenced by name. Oh, Which I think... Internal wincing going on over here. Yeah. So the two things. Didn't like the ending. Bad Boys and The Rock are referenced by name. Those two things I could have really done without. Everything in between that, because that actually takes place at the, you know, the, the latter thing, the thing with the, the, the name drop in the films actually takes place right at, at the beginning. And yeah, you do roll your eyes and you think, what? No, <laughs> no. Everything in between, I'm not going to lie, I had a lot of fun. It was fun. You know, it, I, I wanted an action thriller that was slick, 
and that was lean and where I could turn my brain off and that, you know, had some gritty, um, mad levity to it. And that's what I got. That's what it did. My God, it succeeded. Yeah. So apart from... His broken limb. Yeah. Apart from two key things that were pretty arse-sucky, everything that occurred in between those, I, I really enjoyed myself. I, I really enjoyed... I, I enjoyed myself a lot. The thing is, I mean, I didn't actually watch it on the big screen. I saw a screener at home. I would have preferred to see it in the cinema. You know, um, but you know, my laptop screen, it does well enough when it needs to. <laughs> and yeah, no, and yeah, a lot of fun, really enjoyed myself. Great sort of boys' night in film. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, give it a watch. Wonders never cease. Michael Bay may have made another good movie. <laughs> well, another entertaining movie. Yes, we yeah, another, entertaining. Let's not go too far. Yeah, no, another film, a film, finally, a film that is very entertaining. Hey, hey, amazing Which stuff. is all we fucking wanted. That's what he sells himself as. And he seldom delivers on it. So this time around, he has. So just do that more, for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Well, TV of the week, it's back again. Um, this week, I've decided to review an Apple original. It's been quite a long while since we've done one of those. Oh, yes. Uh, I haven't been very impressed with Apple's foray into TV originals so far, with the exception of C. That I like yeah, I was just thinking of C. All the others that I've seen have been um, really, there's there's a weird thing going on with Apple's lighting department or whoever they're contracting to do their lighting because everything looks really sort of plastic and overdone and over Botox and digital edited in a way that I really haven't liked. They've all had this sort of weird sheen over the top of them that I haven't been able to get along with. And really not particularly interesting now. So it looks like a piece of shit. It looks like a piece of shit, yeah. And I just haven't been able to get on with just about any of their stuff since C, to be honest. And even C suffers from that to a small degree anyway. But there has been a big new release recently based on a Mick Heron novel. And uh, it's called Slow Horses. Slow Horses? This mm. rings something of a bell. It was quite a big book series, apparently. There are several of these. I believe the next book's called uh, Dead Lions. They're sort of uh, spy thrillers. And, uh, well, they've got a lot going for them, actually. So I checked this out. This has come out very, very recently. Premiered on uh, Apple TV Plus on April the 1st of this year. And no, it wasn't an April Fool's Day joke. Um, this opens up in London uh, with River Cartwright, who is a young man working for MI5. And he's played by Jack Loden. And they're at Stansted Airport, an airport that was actually at quite recently. Uh, an airport widely regarded as the airport you go to if you want a really, really cheap flight. Scumbag airport. Well, I mean, I was there, so what does that say For about scum. me? But yeah, we, yeah, you know, <laughs> I just added to the scum talent. Essentially. <laughs> but, uh, yes, yes, we're at Stansted Airport, and. River Cartwright is working for MI5 and he's tailing a subject in the departure lounge. And he's got his earpiece in and he's got a bunch of guys around him that are referred to as dogs, i.e. Um, workers, sort of contract killers almost, that the MI5 use as you know, muscle, essentially, surrounding him. He's there on his earpiece and he's talking back to MI5 HQ to uh, Diana Tavener, who's running the operation, played by Kristen Scott Thomas. And she's asking how the operation is going. And he's like, I've got my man. I've found him. And he looks over and there is a young Asian guy sitting in the departure lounge and he's wearing a white shirt, white t-shirt with a blue shirt over the top of it. And he goes, yeah, I've got my mark. Asian guy, white t-shirt, blue shirt over the top of it. Um, I, I'm going to I'm gonna apprehend him. I'm going to get on him. And MI5 is asking him over his headpiece, are you sure? Are you certain this is the guy? And a cleaner gets in the way with a cleaning cart. And he goes, shit, shit, I've lost contact. He sort of moves around, the edges around a bit. Gets another look at the guy, goes, yes, this is definitely my man. Suddenly, this guy is called onto the plane. And River scrambles, absolutely scrambles for it. He starts jumping over fences. MI5 is like, go, go, go. He runs after him. He chases him down the hallway. This Asian guy looks over his shoulder and goes, oh, shit, they're after me. He starts running, trying to get onto the plane. They go through the tunnel. They go down the stairs. They go out onto the, you know, it's a typical standstill flight where the tunnel doesn't actually go to the fucking plane. You have to go <laughs> down the tunnel, down the stairs, across a bit of tarmac, to some more stairs, which then get you on the flight. Anyway, he gets on top of this guy, literally lands on top of him. The dogs pin this guy down and they start going through his bag. They turn his bag upside down and find that all he's got in it is your regular hand luggage stuff the young British Asian student might be carrying. 
It's a folder. It's a water bottle. There is no bomb. There is obviously not what they're looking for. So River goes, oh shit, I fucked up. And there's a message through from MI5HQ that says, so you're certain this was the guy, a guy with a, a, a blue shirt with a white shirt on top of it. And he goes, no, 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 that's, that's not what you said. You said a guy with a white shirt and a blue shirt, not a blue shirt and a white shirt. No, 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 you've got the wrong man. All of a sudden they realize their mistake. There is another guy that shows up on CCTV who is wearing the correct attire and is also an Asian man making his way towards a flight. So River takes off and his MI5 HQ goes, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't, you can't you have to stay where you are. We're going to get somebody else on it. He goes, no, 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 it's my gig. I'm going to take the guy down. So he starts screaming through the airport. He's knocking people over left, right and center. A police officer tries to stop him at one point and he gets the guy in like a judo hold and throws him over his shoulder. Keeps running, keeps running. And this guy is now booking it to the Stansted Express which is the railway station and the main train line that links Stansted Airport to the rest of London, which I would like to point out on my most recent flight was non-operational and forced me to get a, forced me to get a replacement bus if anybody from Stansted Airport is listening, which I know you're not. But anyway, he makes it to this train. River is right behind him and they stop as he's standing next to the train. River looks at him and goes, don't, please don't do it. And this guy holds up his hand and in his hand there is a button and connected to this button is a wire, and this wire goes down his sleeve. And the guy grins at him, presses the button, and we get a smash cut to white. Jump forward to the future. Uh, River has now been demoted. Demoted very, very heavily to Slough House, which is a really grimy London terraced office above a really grotty-looking Chinese restaurant. And this is essentially the place you get sent if you fucked up on an MI5 gig. And his boss, and you're going to like this, is a man called Jackson Lamb, who sits at the top of the tower, if you like, within this terrace office setup, played by none other than Mr. Gary Oldman. Oh, okie dokie. Oh, indeed. Cool. So keep track of this, by the way. You've got Jack Loden, who's a good actor in his own right, Kristen Scott Thomas, who's playing one of the heads of MI5, and Gary Oldman coming in as Jackson Lamb. And it's a wonderful bit of characterization. This Jackson is, um, well, he's aging. He's overweight. He's beer bellied. He wears those big old style sort of 70s NHS spectacles. He's got lank shoulder length hair. He chain smokes and he's got holes in his socks. Sounds like a slightly more hopeless and scummy George Smiley. Imagine George Smiley crossed with Rabsi Nesbitt. Um, that's that's, <laughs> that's a hell of an image. That's exactly where you are. Yeah. Uh, Jackson really doesn't like River. In fact, he doesn't like anybody on his team. Because as he points out, they are the titular slow horses. Basically, if you fuck up your MI5 gig, you get sent to Slough House and you get put on the really, really shit work that nobody else in MI5 wants to do. They're considered a bit of a joke by the organization. Jackson is hoping that they secretly quit out of either sheer boredom or intolerance to the fact that he berates them horribly every day and likes to remind them of how constantly useless they've been in their lives. And that's why they've ended up with him. But River is determined to make his way back up in MI5. And he notices that one of the routines that he's been put on, one of the jobs that he's been given, his operation, is to go through this right-wing journalist's rubbish. And so we see him at the start of this new sequence, pulling open a rubbish bag in the middle of Slough House and going through things like rotten meat, cat food tins, all that kind of stuff. But he notices that MI5, they're coming in quite often and they want more and more information on this guy. And he suspects that something may be afoot. So he takes it upon himself in order to rejuvenate his career, in order to uh, redeem himself for his terrible fuck up, to start investigating further than his remit allows underneath the nose of his new quite horrible man of a boss. And I would love to go further into the plot than that, but that is where I'm going to leave it. Is there enough there, do you think? Yeah, I get it. Enough yeah. to sort of tempt you and, and entangle you a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, what I'd really like to do is go into what happens next, but I'm really quickly getting into spoiler territory with that because this thing moves at quite a pace, which is, I guess, the first thing I'll start off with. Um, you've got this big high action sequence right at the very start of the show, and it's really, really well directed. It's really punchy. It's got that sort of ticking time bomb, heart pumping kind of feel. Even though you don't know the characters yet, you know this is an MI5 agent after a guy that potentially has a bomb. So you've got that element of jeopardy, all these people around trying to go on a holiday. He's chasing through and bouncing people out the way and flying down flights of stairs and knocking over police officers. It's really frenetic and punchy and very well directed. And then this show slows down. 
And as soon as we get to Slough House, everything takes its foot off the accelerator. Everything suddenly does a little bit of characterization. I mean, River is surrounded by members of his team, other people that have been demoted. We've got um, Saskia Reeves as Catherine Standish, who is the administrator and sort of Jackson's number two. She's essentially been put there because of something that happened to her previous boss. And as a result is now Jackson's uh, sort of assistant number two kind of thing. We've got um, Olivia Cook as Sid, who seems to be surprisingly competent for somebody that's been sent to the ship bin. We've got uh, Dustin Demery Burns as Min, who's also assigned. So you've got all these different characters coming in and little tiny bits of their backstory are given. You're given little hints and little drops and little tiny bits of information that suggest that they've all got very good reasons for being sent down to this bottom of the bin institution. And it sort of works on its characters for a little bit. In the first couple of episodes, I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm quite intrigued by this. The performances are good. Um, the direction's good. It looks nice as well. It really captures that grimy, horrible London kind of feel, you know, sort of the, the rain's bringing the soot down almost in that way that London most definitely very much is. <clears throat> and then at the end of episode two, it does something really shocking. And then episode three goes absolutely batshit bananas. <laughs> and I absolutely love it when a show does that. It does a bait and switch. Now, as usual, whenever I reveal a bait and switch, I feel like I've somehow spoiled it in advance, you know, without even giving you any information as to why there's, you know, why it suddenly picks up the pace. I feel like, oh, now you're going to be waiting for it. But trust me, it won't ruin the experience. All those little drops of characterization that it was putting in quite early on, all those slow bits where you go, oh, the script's quite good and the acting's quite nice. And I am intrigued to see where the plot goes next. All of a sudden, it blows everything up. It turns everything up to 11. All of a sudden, all these characters' backstories suddenly come running at you. Everybody suddenly gets this huge, deep whomph underneath them where you suddenly think, oh my God, actually, there's a load of facets to this that I wasn't paying attention to. And of course, because it's a spy mystery thriller kind of thing, there's layers to the plot, there's layers of subterfuge, there's backstabbing, there's double crossing, all those kind of things you would have hoped, but it suddenly goes for it. It goes for the absolute nines. And I absolutely love it when a show does that. And this is a great, great example of really, really good, clever pacing. Draws you in slow and then punches you in the throat. Absolutely adore that. Um, the performances are wonderful. Jack Lowden as River Cartwright, he sort of really desperately wants to be James Bond, but not in a overplaying it kind of way. He wants to be the realistic Bond. It's, there's none of that sort of, I think I'm bigger than I am. He just wants to be good at his job and he's very, very annoyed that because of a simple mistake, he's been put somewhere where he's surrounded by people that are obviously below his caliber. And there's, there's a nice sort of interplay that with, he's got sympathy for the people around him, but at the same time, he does think he's ever so slightly above them. There's nice character work going on there. Gary Oldman, I mean, it's kind of redundant to say that Gary Oldman is good in a role. However, he has said this may very well be his last. Oh, really? Yeah, he's talking about retiring, and this is the character that apparently he wants to go out on, which should give you an idea of the strength of characterization that he's playing with. I mean, if anybody's going to know a good script, it's Mr. Gary fucking Oldman, right? And holy hell, I mean, Jackson Lamb immediately becomes one of your favorite fictional characters. Did he say to River, you're a useless cunt? Something like it, yeah. But <laughs> he's doing that great thing where you know where certain South London geezers, as they get older and their voice starts to wither because of all the cigarettes they smoked, etc., they go slightly higher. Yeah. So he's got a, a bit of that in his voice, you know, and he's, he's oh, occasionally he goes a bit high. You know, but it's, it's very nuanced. It's very like, as you said, George Smiley, it's sort of like the anti-George Smiley. If you like, still just as good as his job, by the way, which makes him brilliant as a character because he's there going, oh, for fuck's sake, and then doing something brilliant. I mean, who doesn't love those kind of underdog characters? Totally, you know what yeah. I mean? But he's actually got one of the most interesting backstories of all. And that's very gently and very gradually revealed. Jackson Lamb, still at the end of this, actually, is left as something of a mystery. But you start to get the idea that actually... Back in his day, he was a very, very serious man indeed. And that gradual reveal through it, I think, is wonderful. Gary Oldman having the time of his life. He has said, oh, the second season for this, by the way, has already been filmed. There's actually a trailer at the end of season one for season two. It's literally that done. But Gary Oldman has said, providing they want to keep going with it, because there's quite a few books, if they want to keep doing the books, I'll keep playing the character and then I might call it quits because I really like the character and I want to see this work through to the end. So really what you're watching, it might be sort of Gary Oldman's acting epitaph, if you like, but you can absolutely see why this is the one that he want to go out on. This is a great, great piece of work. It's pacey, it's punchy, it's very witty, 
very, very funny. And it comes at you at odd angles with the humor as well. It's really got a certain visual style to it that is really vivid and cinematic. I mean, how many TV things have I talked about in recent years where, oh, it looks like a film? I mean, this is really great modern digital cinematography at its finest. It really captures something. But underneath it all, there's a there's a buzz, there's a tingle to it. This is a plot that makes your hair stand on end. These are characters that weave in and out of each other without being cliche, without being tropey. It's essentially the best spy thriller that I've seen in a very, very long time. I would describe it as Tinker Taylor Soldier Fuck. <laughs> and I, I think you probably know where I am with that. You know what I mean? There's nothing particularly subtle about it, but it goes, it swings for the fences. It really wants to move. It really wants to get you invested. And through the strength of those performances, it really makes it work. It's brilliantly, brilliantly done. Oh, and Jonathan Price is in it as well, by the way. Well, someone else that I've always liked very much. I say Jonathan Price is in it. He's in the first episode and the last episode, but he's very good, <laughs> as you would expect Jonathan Price to be. But yeah, Slow Horses, man. Uh, one of my favorite things I've seen all year. It's really got some go in it. And Sweet. I yeah, the, um, the title is very familiar. I think I may have read the Wikipedia page of this when I was looking up. I think I was looking up John Le Carre novels and I looked under, like, you know, spy, spy fiction category mm. and I think Slow Horses came up. So yeah. I believe that I've um, read the synopsis of this, but yeah, I had no idea they turned it into a television series. And you've got to see it for the Gary Oldman performance alone, but you essentially, you, you come for the Gary Oldman performance and you stay for the rest of it. And that speaks to the strength of the rest of it, I would say. Well, I love Gary Oldman. So um, yeah, I think I'm probably going to have to bump this up priority list by bump some it, distance. Mate. Absolutely bump it. Right then, trivia this week. Trivia? Uh, something that immediately put me on a government watch list. Once again, I must be on quite a few watch Spies. lists. Spies. MI5. Oh, MI5. I spent the afternoon merrily Googling the intimate details of MI5. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if the podcast doesn't turn up next week, you know what's What is happened. the distinction between five and six again? Ah, I'm going to get into that. Actually. Oh, okay, that is, fair enough. That is my first bit of trivia. Coughing me a bolt too soon. MI5, otherwise known as the Security Service in capitals is the Domestic Counterintelligence and Security Agency for the United Kingdom. While the Security Intelligence Service, otherwise known as MI6, focuses on foreign threats and where the fictional James Bond works, MI5 focuses on threats within Britain. Though not as buried in secrecy as MI6, MI5 has its own interesting history and facts. As the Secret Service Bureau, MI5 wasn't formed to just protect against domestic threats, but to gather intelligence on German imperial activities it's worth noting that this directive occurred five years before World War I. While the SSB handled both foreign and domestic threats, Captain Mansfield Cummings successfully argued for a separation into two departments, leading to the split of the SSB in 1910 into the Security Service MI5 and the Secret Intelligence Service MI6. Wow, so five is internal and six is external. Yes, essentially. Oh, wow. Yeah, Mansfield Cummings. I know, right? I mean, you Captain <laughs> Mansfield Cummings. There's a Stephen Fry character of over herbal, or like you know a, a, a British Regency porn character. That's true. Yeah, yes. yeah. Is he Cummings? Is he Goings? We really, yeah. really don't know. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth the spymaster was a precursor to MI5. MI5's earliest antecedent was Sir Francis Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth I's spymaster from 1573 to 1590. Fearful of a Catholic uprising, Walsingham recruited informers, cryptographers, and seal breakers to form a protective spy ring around the Queen. His efforts resulted in, amongst other things, the execution of Mary Queen of Scots and a strategic advantage when the Spanish Armada attacked England in 1588. The rose that Walsingham pressed into his wax seals is referenced on the MI5's coat of arms. Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting guy. Where's his biopic? I want to know. Still not yeah. declassified, I suppose. Well, just don't want to get a fucking wiggle on. <laughs> MI5 was accused of forging a letter that influenced the general election. MI5 had a controversial impact in the 1924 general election after intercepting a letter inciting British communists to action. It bore the signature of Comintern Chairman Gregory Zinoviev. MI5 officers presented the Zinoviev letter to Ramsay MacDonald, whose Labour government had just lost a vote of no confidence. And though MacDonald agreed to keep it secret, the letter was leaked to the press. Published four days before the election, the letter negatively impacted both Labour and Liberal Party votes, helping the Conservatives to win a parliamentary majority. 
while the Zinoviev letter's true author remains unknown. MI5 has repeatedly been accused of forging it. Wow. All kinds of shady stuff going on in the background. They probably still fucking do it now. <laughs> no, no, never. Never. They're a, <laughs> a wonderful organization. I certainly won't have a word said against them, not in public. Integrity with a capital I. <laughs> Michael Bettany was an MI5 agent who apparently wasn't so good at maintaining his secrecy. Recruited to the counter-espionage unit of MI5 in 1982, he was eventually convicted of passing sensitive documents to the Soviets in 1984. Beside his frequent boasting of working for the other side, he twice admitted to being a spy, once to avoid a ticketmaster at the station, and a second time to get out of being arrested for public drunkenness. He was arrested for treason when an MI6 agent working inside the Soviet embassy, Oleg Gorzevsky, reported Bettany to his superiors. Oh, well, fucking hell. <laughs> I love using your secret agent status to get out of not paying train fare. I think that's an amazing breach of protocol. <laughs> I mean, it's taking the absolute piss, but you've got yeah, just the brazenness. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, my last fact here, well, this isn't so much of a fact, actually. I just thought this was very, very interesting. Doing my MI5 research, um, someone asked on, you know, Cora? Yeah, I know Cora, yeah. Where people ask questions on the internet. It's sort of like a mini forum thing and people turn up with their knowledge base and try and answer them in the Bunch most efficient way. wankers giving really stupid answers. It's a great way shit. to get terrible information to your yeah. question. Yeah, absolutely. But somebody posted about MI5 and what it was like and how to get in and all that kind of stuff. And then a load of people posted other stuff going, oh, I've heard it's like this, oh, I've heard it's like that. And then we have, uh, I might be about to get him in trouble actually, but it's on the internet. So, you know, freedom Fuck of information, him. all that. Yeah. Uh, Tyrone Brown, who uh, apparently works in logistics, at uh, HMGov UK from 1982 to present, and he answered his question. And the question was, what are the pros and cons of joining MI5 or similar agencies? And he said, the anonymous posters before me should be ignored. I doubt they have any experience. There will not be James Bond action. Expect boredom and stress. Expect a huge degree of compartmentalization and red tape to get the simplest thing done. Never have an argument in a pub road rage incident, or anything that will go on your record. Expect crap pay. If you are operational, you'll be a grey man or woman for the rest of your life. Expect to know things that will make you disagree with popular viewpoints, but you can't say why. But having said all of that, one good day can make up for everything. Only a few people will know it's a good day. <laughs> that struck me as bringing a slight bit of truth. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a hell of an answer. I mean, I like the... Just the the candor of his answer. Expect yeah, crap pay. I yeah, mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get the sense that it's actually, and I, I love it when, you know, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy did this, obviously all the uh, John McCary stuff did. Uh, and this does as well with Slow Horses, essentially shows that actually most of the time it's just shit bureaucracy work. But occasionally something exciting happens. <laughs> you know, I get the feeling that's more more of the truth than anything uh, anything action movie based. I would hazard a guess that it's um, just comprehensively better than working in the service industry. One would assume. Which me and you have ample experience of. So. Yes, and, and never going back. You know, I mean, <laughs> MI5, if you're listening, if you're looking for a podcast host slash producer, I am available. I'm for the MI5 podcast. How good would that be? <laughs> we can't say anything this week. <laughs> anyways, anyways, that's the end of the free podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, actually, this all ties in rather nicely to our premium podcast this week. Uh, where we talk about, uh, well, conspiracy thrillers and uh, cover-ups, that sort of thing. That's where we're going. In, yeah, well, yeah, both of those, actually, because I've, I've made a list of a few films that um, some could uh, probably more aptly be described as conspiracy-oriented, and then uh, there are others that sort of focus a bit more on, you know, cover things being covered up, but they're not necessarily conspiracy-oriented in your typical paranoid thriller motion picture. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's still, you know, like... Um, it bit, sort of spreads out to spy yeah. films. Pe- sort of people stuff. conspiring to conceal something, and I've tried to be as, as you know, tried to make it, uh, the, the, the examples as non-tenuous as possible. So Absolutely. So if you're interested in any of that, please do check out our premium content via our uh, cinementalist.com page. Please it's do. still up, cinementalist.com. It certainly is. Uh, a lot of people listen to the podcast. No one goes to the fucking website. I don't know why I pay for it. But yes, cinementalist.com. <laughs> you can find a link to our Patreon page or you can just go directly to Patreon, I suppose. Why do we have a website? 
because uh, it looks decent. Yeah. It does look pretty decent. It does look It looks good. pretty metal. It does. I'm quite fond of the website, actually. Yeah, I don't know why yeah. I dissed it. Yeah. Put a lot of work into it. But anyway, yes, uh, we have premium content. Please do think about becoming a Patreon subscriber. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Cinementalcast, and you can follow Liam at... I'm Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Lovely. Okay, well, hope to see you in the premium stuff. If not, free one next week. Take it easy, guys.